I think what they used as their model is the carnival. An advanced man would come through and put window cards in all the barber shops and give out free tickets and try to stoke some you know, publicity out of the local newspapers. And then a few days later, the person with the prints would show up and do the live lecture and sell the booklets for as souvenirs for additional money, again, pretending that they're educational, but obviously people are buying them because they think they're, you know, they have illustrations and something that you can't get in Life magazine. Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of vintage film. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site for movies from the vintage era all around the world. In this episode, illicit thrills of today's wild teens, forbidden sex rites of exotic lands, and volleyball. We lift the veil on the shocking secrets of the golden era of exploitation films with Brett Wood, producer of Kino's upcoming series Forbidden Fruit. And we look at a forgotten animator whose influence has lasted decades as film critic Michael Atkinson takes us inside Criterion's Three Fantastic Journeys by Carol Zeman. Help others find their way to the weird, fantastic world of Nitrateville Radio. Leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts. Thanks. As different as they may seem, there's something both segments in this episode have in common. Today, movie screens are nearly monopolized by the big brand content of a shrinking number of studios. If you want something different, you have to turn to streaming services and other alternative ways of seeing movies. But in the old days, as dominant as the Hollywood studios undoubtedly were, there were ways to make a sensation outside the control of the studios. We'll start with exploitation films, films which shone a light on subjects the production code wouldn't touch, and shocked us all the way to the bank. Maybe one puzzle will hurt you. Sure, you know I wouldn't steer you wrong. Congratulations, now you'll start living. <laughs> uh, Lena, you usually take C, don't you? You can shoot me if I don't, with a needle. Clara Lou, I think I'm in trouble. Frequently it results in a softening of the brain tissues, causing syphilitic insanity. <laughs> If you're of a certain age, you probably saw things like Reefer Madness at midnight shows. Maybe with a little herbal help. Other exploitation films are just rumors, long unseen. But Kino Lorber's five-disc series Forbidden Fruit, The Golden Age of the Exploitation Picture, rescues these tawdry titles and brings them to video with the same care and respect for complete authoritative versions as they gave to the films of pioneering women and African-American filmmakers. The first three were released on February 25th, 
with more to follow in May. I spoke with producer Brett Wood, who we last spoke to in episode 44, at his home in Atlanta. We called the series Forbidden Fruit, the golden age of the exploitation picture, and it's a, a revival and celebration of the um, independent films made mostly in the 30s and 40s that skirted the production code because they were independent and focused on themes of uh, drug abuse, uh, uh, sexual delinquency and venereal diseases and a wide variety of issues of things that were not discussed in respectable cinema. Um, and so by calling these films educational, they could, uh, almost thumb their nose at the production code because, you know, they would boast of having, uh, you know, advisors and the endorsement of law enforcement agencies, drug enforcement agencies. But really, the whole thing was uh, kind of a way to dodge the censors and basically show things that Hollywood films was forbidden to show. Now, when I first saw some of these films, I'd say they're kind of mixed together with a lot of the, you know, the Ed Wood type, basically incompetent or, you know, kitschy bizarre films and you know and it's not an, an irrational thing to mix those together because sometimes some right. of the same people were involved with both i mean a movie like maniac made by Dwayne esper uh is basically just an over-the-top horror film but at the same time he made other uh films that like you say were addressing these social issues i'm really not yeah. fond of the whole ed wood thing i feel if you've if you've seen more ed wood films than jean renoir films you know you're doing it wrong <laughs> but uh these but films in, but in ed wood's defense the w- one thing i like about these films and and even a lot of the so-called you know there's different ways you can look at bad movies and for me i like to look at them and sort of see what someone was able to achieve against the odds working completely outside of Hollywood um, and discovering little moments of artistry, artistry with a small A, not a big A, um, <laughs> because it's a little more exciting to, to sort of see like, wow, that actually was kind of a neat moment there. Um, but the, you know, a, again, it's, but it's more about celebrating these films and finding something of value in them rather than just laughing at them. I've always resented the whole, you know, the, the cult of people who like to laugh at bad movies. To me, that's, that's not, you know, that's not celebrating film and I just don't find it very fun. Yeah. But with these films, I mean, there is something of a sociological aspect to them that you couldn't really say that plan nine has maybe Glenn or Glenda. Yeah. Uh, But, but they're about, these topics that were out of reach to the mainstream film media, but obviously had interest. And they're sort of, a lot of times they're sort of the equivalent of, you know, there are certain magazines back in the day that would offer ads for the encyclopedia of sexuality. Yeah. You know, right, sort right. of high toned porn that uh, would telling, telling you about uh, the strange sexual practices in other parts of the world, supposedly, and stuff like that. And sometimes the healthful benefits of nudism yeah. as evidenced in two of the films in this collection. That's another thing where, like, no, I'm just learning about physical culture and good health. And the benefits of playing a lot of volleyball. <laughs> right. Volleyball and archery. Yeah. It's pretty funny. Archery, really? That's a little scary. 
that's, that's getting things a little too close for me. Um, well, first off, I mean, how are these films? Who made these films? How are these films shown? What was you know what was this uh, film industry outside the conventional film industry? Yeah, and to me, that's one of the reasons why these films deserve a closer look. And they, I feel like they've not been appropriately appreciated. You know, we write about them because of the scandalous nature and in terms of censorship, which I still find very fascinating, but also it, I think it's important to see them in comparison to the Hollywood uh, industry, you know, the monopoly of production, distribution, and exhibition where the theaters or the studios own their own theaters and basically blocked out independence. Um, and also, you know, blocked out not only independent filmmakers, but blocked out independent theaters. So if you owned a mom and pop movie theater, you could place big studio titles only after they've played themselves out, you know, in the major markets or at the bigger theaters. Right. Well, here is something that allowed the small theater, the main street theater that I could say, call them in the trades, um, to show something that will get people to line up around the block. Um, and it's, and it's interesting because the, the mode of distribution is different because these are states' rights. Uh, films distributed like in the states' rights model where someone will own a territory and, and often drive the print from theater to theater um, as opposed to having a lot of prints at a, you know, a film exchange. So there, it was different from Hollywood on so many levels, and they kind of reinvented the wheel in order to compete because they didn't have the muscle that Hollywood had. They didn't have the money. And, and part of, I think what they used as their model is the carnival. Um, as far as this whole town to town, uh, marketing where an advanced man, so-called advanced man would come through and put window cards in all the barber shops and give out free tickets and try to stoke some, you know, publicity out of the local newspapers. And then a few days later, the person with the prints would show up and do the live lecture and sell the booklets for as souvenirs for additional money. Again, pretending that they're educational, but obviously people are buying them because they think they're, you know, they have illustrations and something that you can't get in life magazine. Yeah. <laughs> interesting that they, they changed the way films were, um, you know, not only shot, but also distributed and shown. Well, uh, although it's also kind of a throwback to the earliest days before the industry was so corporatized that yeah. that was how a lot of things were done. I mean, there were all kinds of filmmakers who went around with all kinds of different ways of doing it. They could be showing something sensational. They could be shooting in a small town and then showing the film on Saturday night. You know, all kinds of things like that. And state states' rights, obviously, was a major form of distribution I don't know, in, into the 20s, I suppose, at least. Yeah, just recently came off the, the project of women directors of the silent era. And that was one of the big things that I took away from that, that the reason there suddenly were no, one of the reasons there were suddenly no women directors by the mid to late 20s is partly that um, how all the, you know, the films and the power got consolidated in the studios and independence got pushed out. So there were these kinds of regional filmmakers who would make movies and, and tour them themselves. And I, I'm sure some of that still continued. I mean, as the exploitation films show, but um, it was harder to, 
you know, before this era, an independent filmmaker could survive more easily, I think. And, you know, and, and all these, not all these, but a lot of these filmmakers and a lot of the actors come from the low budget Westerns. That's where Esper sort of first got in the industry. And a lot of the actors from his films come from Westerns. So they would play in these small towns and, they, and they'd book these these uh, neighborhood theaters that were not attached to the chains. Were they basically four-walling? Were they just rented it outright? Or how did it work? Yeah, they would uh, just rent them as regular, uh, you know, as a regular movie, but they would earn more from the screenings by doing these booklet sales because okay. they would keep the money from the booklet sales. Um, but the, the theater would get its usual film rental. And then what was, you know, we always read things about, you know, they had to like figure out how to get the sheriff on their side, either convince him that it was, uh, you know, something of, of educational value or just yeah. pay him off or not show him the parts that were, that he might be most likely to, to, uh, arrest them all over or whatever it took to get it shown. Yeah, that you know, they would definitely inflate the credentials of the medical authorities who have approved the film. And, you know, some the biggest film, Mom and Dad, did have a lot of high profile people endorsing it because it was genuinely educational. It was also really sensational. Um, but the other thing you mentioned is that whether or not the sheriff sees the film they're going to show, that's another interesting part of these is that the film, you know, the version of marijuana weed with roots in hell you see in Dallas, Texas may be different from the one you see in Atlanta or New York because uh, they would have different cuts and some prints would have nudity or other sensational material and some wouldn't. And then I'm sure you're familiar with the uh, phenomenon of the square up reel, right? where if they show a movie that's kind of leaves the audience a little disappointed. Maybe they've oversold how salacious the film is going to be. You throw on a, a nudist reel or a one reel birth reel um, just so that the audience got something for their money. And really this, it's impossible for anyone to have previewed that. You know what I mean? Like say the sheriff did actually go to the trouble of screening the film in advance, which I doubt ever happened. Um, <laughs> they wouldn't have been able to see this sort of reel that got thrown in at the last minute. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, you get this idea of the road showmen and there were women because uh, a lot of people worked the, the tour in couples um, were kind of like living by their wits and sort of reading the, you know, the, the vibe of the town, like what they can get away with and then curating you know, the presentation accordingly. All right, well, let's talk about the first one. And, you know, this is one of those things. I mean, people claim that, uh, you know, Deep Throat might have been the highest grossing movie of the 70s. And that's pretty clearly not true simply because it didn't play in enough places to have made, yeah. you know, Jaws-type money. But Mom <laughs> and Dad probably was one of the highest grossing movies of the 1940s and played for years and years. Uh, tell me about mom and dad. Yeah, I was always skeptical that it made as much as it was reputed to have made. But then uh, the person who licensed the film to us, David Pierce, had was able to provide me with some of the box office reports for like a year-long tour 
in Texas and maybe a little bit of Oklahoma and just adding up what one print of the film did. I think it was one print. It might've been multiple prints, but one, you know, roadshow unit, you know, we, I was able to calculate well over a million dollars. So if, if one, and this is also a few years after the initial release. So absolutely this film made, you know, multiple million dollars. And I know that it did continue playing into the seventies because it got an R rating when it was submitted Uh. to the MPAA. So that had to have been at least 68. And because it's not been available on video and it's not been on television that people have forgotten about it. You know, you would think that one of the highest grossing films of the forties coming out on home video would be a pretty big deal, but it's just been forgotten because that generation that saw it in the theater, you can mention it. Like I can mention it to my father and who's 85 years old and he'll want to start telling stories about, it. Oh yeah, people were packed in and they had the men would see it in the evening and women would see it in the daytime. So it was, it was a phenomenon that everyone knew about, but for anyone, you know, born, I was born in 65, you know, it's, I had not heard about it until my adult life as I'm getting interested in, exploitation film. So it's kind of interesting that something can fall off the cultural radar right. that severely, but that's what happens when, uh, you know, there's, there's no one championing the film or, or as with Disney re-releasing the film every seven years or so. But if you want me to tell you a little bit about the movie, so it's a, you know, there had been these other films which sort of warn against the dangers of uh, premarital sex or teenagers uh, going to roadhouses and, you know, things like that. And um, this one producer, Kroger Bab, wanted to make the, you know, the sex hygiene film to end all sex hygiene films. <laughs> so he actually sunk a fair amount of money into it. You know, he got a, a veteran director to direct it and, you know, commissioned some original songs and had like some vaudeville type performance, a jitterbug contest and stuff like that to kind of give it some production value. But then the real piece de resistance is at the end, um, showing the actual, you know, close up birth footage that might've gotten tagged onto some films or some films may have had birth footage and grainy quality, you know, Dwayne Esper's narcotic in 1933 just almost randomly has a cesarean birth in it. So, you know, we know that birth footage would appear in these exploitation films, but with mom and dad, it's very clear. And I think you see, I think two or three different births and which is then followed by, um, you know, syphilis footage showing naked bodies and the ravages of syphilis, unlike anything that I think had been shown prior to that, just like close up detail. Um, and even, I was, in fact, it came up at lunch today and I was talking to someone who had helped. I bet it came up at lunch. On the film. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we had to stop talking about it at a certain point, but you know, he was talking about, he was doing the digital cleanup and was like, I thought I'd seen everything. And, and I'm watching this innocuous movie about this high school girl. And then suddenly, stuff comes on screen and I had to and he got yelled for his wife to come in the room and, and look at it as well because they couldn't believe that you know this is stuff that you don't you know 
Right. I don't go looking for it, but you don't see this kind of stuff on the internet today because it, it's still really shocking. But anyway, so Kroger Bab wanted to show it all and in the name of science and the well-being of America's youth and had it built enough of a campaign around it that it had this air of respectability and it was not shameful to go see mom and dad. And so I think that was a big thing that sort of taking away the stigma of the exploitation film allowed it to earn so much money. Well, let's talk about the, uh, the role of one of America's great medical scientists, Dr. Elliot Forbes in this production. <laughs> right. Um, so the, uh, it was not unusual for an exploitation film to show with a live lecturer again, just to sort of, uh, underscore the educational value of the film. But Kroger Bab crafted a persona, Elliot Forbes, who would be, they would stop short of saying Elliot Forbes is a doctor. They would say like a sex hygiene authority or something like that. And so the idea is he would appear and deliver a sex hygiene lecture. And what's interesting about mom and dad is the film is actually structured so that the movie stops. And it says something like, and now here's a word from our sex hygiene commentator. And then the lights come up and he would go up, give his speech, make a sales pitch for the booklets. And then the film would resume. And that's when you would see some of the shocking footage. So that kind of thing had happened. But again, it had never been built into the film that you have to stop the projector and allow this live performance component to occur. Um, and then, of course, afterwards, there were other, plenty of other eminent uh, uh, sex hygiene lecturers attached to films. There's like Alexander Leeds, and there's uh, uh, who else were there? There were just Curtis, I can't remember Curtis's last name, it's maybe Curtis Hayes. But suddenly, every sex, sex hygiene film had to have a, you know, authority attached to the film. And of course, if you saw the movie in New York versus Texas versus Georgia, you would get a different Elliot Forbes. Right. Um, because that was just the name that they marketed, but it was whoever had a copy of the script and preferably a white lab coat um, <laughs> to do the, to do the talk. Now I'm curious about it. William Bodine uh, directed it and you know, he's gotten tagged by the, the Medved brothers long ago with uh, yeah, yeah. You know, worst, worst director ever status, which is simply not true. He was yeah. a, a pretty good director in the silent era and a B director working, you know, under tight time frames on a lot of Bowery boy movies later. Um, yeah. So how do you get involved in this? And wouldn't he have had fear that uh, he'd get tagged with, you know, making a dirty movie. I mean, maybe it was Kroger Testament to Kroger bad that he was able to persuade him that this is a, a respectable film. Um, or maybe it's just that, um, you know, he was, he was willing to work on any kind of film, which I think is to his credit. And, you know, in his defense, I'll say that, you know, in addition to, uh, working on with a very low budget, well, that, means that you have a very short shooting schedule. So sure. I'm sure he had no rehearsal time, almost no time for retakes. Um, and he's probably working with less experienced actors than the average 
the picture director at some of the other studios and production companies. All right. So mom and dad, uh, do you have someone, is, is there footage of a, of an Elliot Forbes that comes in that break? Not, not exactly. There's a, we have footage of a guy named Don Davison who was doing these kinds of films well into the seventies. And this footage was shot in the seventies sometimes. And he does the whole okay. uh, book spiel. Um, and then we also have, one that is for drive-ins because a lot of times if it's at a drive-in they would have a filmed lecture and so you would go to the concession stand or they would say ushers are going to move around the drive-in and turn on your headlights if you want to buy a book so while we don't have footage of a lecture of that time we've got some other types of those medical lectures and also some other examples of the square up reels the birth reels and some of them are like the shocking birth reels. And then some of them are the, you know, to be honest, kind of boring medical lectures with charts and, you know, animated spermatozoa and, <laughs> and things like that. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so that's the first one. Uh, then you've got volume two has reefer madness and sex madness reefer madness, which was never called reefer madness when it came out. What was it? Usually right. the burning question or yeah, or uh, tell your children. I always reverse. There's tell your children, and they must be told. They kind of play off each other. And I'm pretty sure Reefer Madness is tell your children, and then Sex Madness was released under the title They Must Be Told. Okay. But then again, it was also released as Human Wreckage, and uh, you know all these things. And you know, is another funny thing is that they would just change titles so often. And even films that I thought never underwent title changes. Um, when we were putting this together, uh, one of the films, Marijuana, Weed with Roots in Hell, um, we got some radio spots. And let's see, one the most crazy title for the film is Metamorphosis and the Weed. <laughs> I've never heard anyone refer to it as that. And it's just strange that they would just... Uh, you know, almost randomly assign new titles so they could re-release it in the same market. Well, tell me about these uh, these two films. Warning youth against, uh, as the cover says, dope-created ecstasy avalanching into <laughs> frightful perversions. It's been a while since I've seen a movie avalanche anything, so. <laughs> uh, Reefer Madness, it's funny, it has become the defining a drug scare film, mainly because it was released on a wider scale in the 1970s by New Line and playing to the uh, midnight movie crowd, which I really miss. We wanted to re-release these at midnight theatrically and kind of revive the midnight movie experience, but people just don't do that anymore. You know, with the, <laughs> right. you know the way our entertainment has moved into the home. You know, we showed some of these at the film forum and the programmer, Bruce Goldstein, said, like, you know, for our audience, nine o'clock is a midnight show. Right. So, you know, <laughs> times change. But yeah, so Reefer Madness has become the best known of the drug scare films. And I think the one thing about it is it's not explicit the way some of the others are. So you can show it in a family environment. It's more about the hysterical nature of it and at times the overacting in the film. but it's still a, you know, an enjoyable, effective film, and it's full of so much misinformation about <laughs> the dangers of marijuana that 
you know, that was something that people got a big kick out of in the seventies. And in fact, you know, this sort of reviving the film as a midnight movie started by a group normal N O R M L, which is trying is a group for the legalization of marijuana right. way back then. And it's funny that now what 50 years later, the change is finally happening. And it seems like people are again, reappreciating the film because they're realizing that the, the, the gross exaggeration of the effects of marijuana, or, you know, it's just like the worst kind of propaganda. They talk about someone chopping someone up with an ax. I think a girl chopped up her family with an ax because she smoked marijuana. So it's especially funny now as, you know, our parents and grandparents are all trying to find the local CBD dispenser <laughs> yeah. uh, of this thing that was for years the scourge of American youth. But you know, time well, I, I learned so much from it. God knows, uh, both that, that you, <laughs> you puff a joint really fast. You know, you don't want to keep it in your lungs for a second, and uh, which was not what Gene and Wilder it, had shown me in Blazing Saddles. I, I was very confused by that. And also makes you play the piano uncontrollably yeah, fast. Yeah, but, yeah. You know, that's, just, that's not such a bad side effect. Yeah, I know. It's funny that it, it does assume that it basically has, you know, an amphetamine-like effect when the yeah. reverse is more true. Um, and like yeah, you said, the first puff, like as soon yeah. as it like gets in your mouth, it's like, you know, hardwired to your brain. Yeah. And sex madness, what's that? And sex madness is kind of your uh, typical sex hygiene picture, but without the lecturer. Um but what's interesting about it is that it sort of throws everything at the wall. It's got the story of the, there's kind of an old chestnut. It comes from the play. I think Eugène Brieu is the author called damaged goods Right. about a couple that want to get married, but one of them has syphilis. They get treated by a quack and end up transmitting it to their partner and to their, their unborn child. And it's a big tragedy and this, play was written to educate people and again who knows how legitimately educate versus you know exploit yeah you know being sensational and selling tickets to the dangers of syphilis but that story has been revived so many times sometimes under its original title uh, damaged goods edgar ulmer made a version called damaged lives and so it's that but it's compounded with uh all sorts of other things there's a plot about like a, apparently a child molester who appears because he goes to a burlesque theater and then appears to like stalk a child in the streets afterwards. There's a woman who takes her uh, co-worker to the burlesque house and then makes lesbian passes at her. There's, so, you know, it was like uh, someone it's, it's, it's got kind of a Dwayne Esper feel and for years. And I think even today still on IMDb, people have believed that Dwayne Esper made it because it is so over the top and just throws everything. It's like everything in the kitchen sink is in this movie. Um, but we know now that Esper did not direct it because it was made in New York and Esper was in LA at the time. And we now know who made it, but it's, it's a fun film because it is so instead of drama, it focuses more on the sensationalism of, um, you know, everything transgressive that you can possibly get into a movie. And then the third one that's coming out in February, and there'll be two more, when did you say the other one's April or May? I think May is when we're going to do them. Yeah. Okay. Well, volume three coming out in February, 
are a pair of nudist films, and there's a genre that we don't have anymore, precisely. Right. Uh, what? Uh, tell me about you know just that that whole idea of actually filmed in a nudist camp, as the as the box says. Yeah, and it was a, a bigger genre back then than we realize today. It's not as fun to revisit those films because most of them, once you get past the fact that someone has no clothes on, they're pretty boring. Right. And especially for a modern viewer who has, you know, internet, an internet connection in their home. Um, but what's, and so again, instead of being built upon some sensational uh, disease or topic, it's, it's more about extolling the, benefits of nudism as a healthy lifestyle. But the main film in it is called the, it's called just unashamed, uh, a romance. And it's something that, uh, Mike Michon, who's the head of film, the film department at the library of Congress was really championing this film. And, uh, so a long time ago, we agreed that if I ever got to do an exploitation series, this film would be in it okay. because it actually has a good story. And it's not just people, you know, playing volleyball. Um, it's a, a woman who goes to a nudist colony and convinces her boss to go because he's a, a, a neurotic. And so he, you know, he becomes healthy and they fall in love. But then this other woman who's a, uh, she's a businesswoman. I don't think she's an heiress. I think she's more of an entrepreneur. She arrives. And so the boss falls in love with this other woman instead. And so our character played by this woman named Ray kid, um, you know, it, it ends tragically for her. And so what's great about unashamed is that, um, it's, it's a poignant moving movie and you don't expect it. You're thinking, okay, I'm going to see, you know, people canoeing and hiking in the nude. But while you're seeing all of that, you sort of, without realizing it, get caught up in a story. And it's one of those, it's beautiful when it happens, when an exploitation film actually turns out to be pretty effective cinema. Right. To, and to so be that's about why we like, yeah. yeah. And it's about something and, and you care about the characters and yeah, and I don't think Ray Kidd made another movie, or if she did, she probably didn't get billing in it. Yeah, and and part of it is because she's non-white. They kind of hedge what race she is. They talk about, oh no, she's people say she looks Indian, but she's not. But clearly, there's this sort of undercurrent that it's because of her race that her boss can't be in love with her, and that is it. Never becomes a big issue in the film, but yet at the same time. You, you can't help but pick up on it. And so there's a little bit of complexity in a movie that on the surface would just seem to be, you know, very ham-fisted and obvious because it, it's accompanied for the sake of contrast by this film, Elysia Valley of the nude, which is kind of your straightforward nudist colony movie, which, you know, checks off all the boxes you would expect it to. Yeah. Now, uh, the ones that you have coming out in May, one of them includes uh, Child Bride, which I remember the, the MST3K guys considered it once and came away from it, you know, kind of feeling like they needed a shower. So, <laughs> And it's, you know, it is a genuinely, you know, we have certain reservations about putting it out, but just for uh, those who don't know the film, you know, it's, again, the issue, it's 
pretending to address is, you know, uh, backwoods people, I think in the Ozarks, uh, adult men marrying uh, teen or preteen girls. And there is a scene where this girl, who's probably like 11 or 12, uh, goes swimming in the nude in the local swimming, swimming hole. And it's a very creepy scene. And on one level, it's creepy because one of the hillbilly characters is leering at her, peeking through the bushes. But at the same time, we as a viewer are peeking through the, bu- the bushes. So it kind of puts us in this really uncomfortable position um, where you're not supposed to really know how you're supposed to be feeling about it. You know what I mean? It's, yeah. it's, it really gets close to a line of being offensive. And we have had people when we were playing the films theatrically last year, you know, leave this one out of the group because it's, it's hard to justify showing that, but I will say I'm very proud. Alexandra Heller Nicholas. I think that, I think she did the commentary track for the film. Yeah. Uh, talked about it and very directly addressed this fact that yes, this film is very problematic on these levels, but let's talk about why it's problematic, why it makes you feel queasy, why the filmmakers did it. And it, and it's, it, it was kind of eye opening and thought provoking and made me feel a lot better about putting this film out because we're not just putting out this. And, you know, and it, the same could be said of all the films, not just this one, because it's the most offensive. Why are we doing this? Are we just being, you know, unscrupulous, you know, by marketing these films to a new audience or is, are we learning something about film at the time and what, is okay to show on screen and what's not okay to show on screen and how times have changed. So, you know, but uh, most of the films do have audio commentary tracks. And I think that's really important to, to provide some historical background so that I'm kind of serious here. It's kind of a learning experience. Yeah. (laughs) No, these films are not educational, but yeah, we can, we can get something out of viewing them. We can certainly learn something about censorship and film production in America in the 40s, the 30s and 40s. So you're getting a little feel of what Kroger Babb himself felt when he was releasing these things. <laughs> I've got a touch of, of Babbism going on. And there's one thing I want to mention uh, before we get close to wrapping up is how the series began. Um, this is something I've been interested in, in a long for a long time. Um, I co-wrote a book on exploitation films in 99, and we released a few um, through Kino International back then, um, but I always wanted to do something more ambitious. And then a couple of years ago, Lisa Petrucci, whose husband was Mike Brainy, who is the founder and you know head of Something Weird Video, who died several years ago. Lisa knew me just from film stuff and art stuff and said, I'd like to find a new home for these films and find a company that would like to uh, you know, give these films a new life and you know, and Kino Lorber seems like someone who could pull it off because we released so many silent movies and early classics and cult films as well. So basically, uh, she arranged for us to get 35 millimeter prints from her collection, from the collection of other people whom she put us in touch with. We worked for the Library of Congress to get uh, prints, including Unashamed and Sex Madness from them. So yeah, so Lisa Petrucci deserves the credit for getting this series up on its feet. 
And now that it is, we're reaching out to other archives, uh, UCLA Film and Television Archive. There's a few films I want to get from them so that we can hopefully create this sort of definitive collection and, you know, treat the films with respect, but not shy away from their, you know, sensational nature as well. So that's just a little bit of prehistory on how the series came together. And we hope to continue doing it. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about how, you know, how you track these down or, I mean, there are some, I I think you have a version of, uh, what is it? Trail of the Penitentes or whatever on one of the, the later ones. And that's a film that doesn't exist in its complete form. And I'm sure there are others that have, you know, any number of variants. Like you said, they tended to do a lot of editing on the fly. What state were most of these films? Did you know you found good material on the ones you're releasing? Most of them, but uh, almost all of them required some additional work. For example, even Mom and Dad, we were able to source. Is it either two or three 35 millimeter prints? But they were all in some state of uh, vinegar syndrome. So they were, they all had some issues. And then we found out that uh, the Academy had at one time had the original camera negatives, but they were suffering from nitrate decomposition, but they had made fine grain, 35 millimeter fine grain prints from those negatives. So, you know, this is much later after we've created the masters and found out about this, (laughs) access those elements and then cut them in. So that's why, when you see mom and dad, the quality will shift from time to time as we go from like second to third generation elements. Reefer Madness, we got that through Phil Hopkins and the company Film Detective, but there were some pieces missing in that. And I think the credit sequence was of a different version. We wanted the version that said Reefer Madness. I may be forgetting, but I do know that we had to supplement what you know, print A, there's almost always a print B or a print C as we try to get the most complete versions possible. Coming up later will be Marijuana, Weed with Roots in Hell, and the Something Weird print was missing its opening titles, and some of the nudity from the skinny dipping scene, but we were able to source that from other elements. So what's really hard is just determining if a film is complete or not. We put out Dwayne Esper's Narcotic back around 99 or 2000. And I assumed that was a complete film. But then when we came back to the Library of Congress to do it again for this release, they had two prints and they said, here, we'll just scan both of them for you and you can compare. And it turns out that there was something like three minutes of censored material in this secondary print. So we were able to plug that in and bring narcotic back to its maybe complete running time we you know you'll never know because almost always there's no surviving original negative all you have are prints and those can you know vary wildly from one to the other and the copyright situation on these are most of them public domain just because they had their day and then were forgotten or yeah pretty much all of them because they're orphan films one way or another and that also means that's why there's no original negatives is there was no one caretaking the prints, just like there was no one caretaking the rights. The one exception is mom and dad. And that's why it was never released for all these years because it's under copyright. And uh, David Pierce had obtained the rights, I think 10 or more years ago. Um, and that's kind of, you know, a, an important to, lesson to learn from that is that if someone owns a film 
of great value and sits on the rights and does nothing with it, it will its its value will go down because people will forget the film. Twenty years ago, if we had had Mom and Dad, it would have probably made a lot more money. But because it was control, you know, under copyright protection and privately owned, there was no way to do that. Do you have any idea who owned it before David Pierce got it? Um, there's a it's a company. It's part of Headliner Productions. I don't know specifically who that is. I think it's probably the family of someone who bought the rights from someone else. But that's, I think, who is the copyright holder, yeah. Yeah, it's probably one of those things that passed from one hand to the next many times as people were squeezing every last dime out of it. Yeah, and then when it falls into the hands of someone who doesn't, who has not been involved in the marketing of the film, they just think, oh, well, here's a movie that made millions of dollars. This movie is worth millions of dollars. (laughs) And you have to convince them mom and dad is not worth millions of dollars anymore. Um so that's sometimes when a when a film's rights get owned by a bank or a grocery store chain or something like that, you know, it's almost a lost cause trying to get it for a reasonable amount of money. You're not suggesting that Kroger Babs movie wound up being owned by Kroger, are you? <laughs> not in that specific example. Have you ever met that funny reefer man? The first three volumes of Forbidden Fruit, The Golden Age of the Exploitation Picture, are out now from Kino Lorber. Links will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. Here it is, a couple of months into 2020. And you know what hasn't happened yet? Nobody's left us a new review at Apple Podcasts since December. Now, it's not just that we like to get those for the ego boost, though we do, but they're important because they affect how much we get displayed in the if you like that, you might also like this area at Apple Podcasts. It helps people discover us and keeps our audience growing, which is important to attracting guests from major publishers and things like that. And then, once we get the school kids hooked on podcasts, the money keeps rolling in, see? <laughs> From the fantastic Jules Verne, creator of Around the World in 80 Days, comes now the most fabulous adventure on, over, or under the earth. The first motion picture produced in the magic image miracle of Mistimation. Wonders never before seen will unfold before your startled eyes. Fantastic aircraft fly the skies. Electronic machines, an incredible sea battle. Today, it's a rare foreign-made film like Parasite that breaks through to American audiences. But the 1950s and 1960s were the golden age for foreign-made films being picked up by savvy distributors like Joseph E. Levine, 
who made a fortune off things like Hercules movies and a Czech animated film called Invention for Destruction, which he retooled into 1961's international success, The Fabulous World of Jules Verne. It was the work of a Czech animator named Karl Samon, whose unique blend of live actors, stop-motion animation, and Victorian-style steel engraving art would prove to be hugely influential on 60s graphic styles and filmmakers from Tim Burton and Terry Gilliam to Wes Anderson. But his films have been hard to see in recent years, and if you did see them in blurry versions on VHS or online, they hardly conveyed the precise and eye-boggling detail of the originals. In the past few years, the Czech Film Foundation and other organizations have been hard at work on restorations. Now three of Zeman's films are being released in America by Criterion, in the box set Three Fantastic Journeys by Carol Zeman, out now. Film critic Michael Atkinson, who teaches at Long Island University and is the author of books including Exile Cinema and the novel Hemingway Cutthroat, wrote an essay for the Criterion set's booklet. We started by talking about the hold that his first Zeman experience had for him, a screening of Journey to the Beginning of Time, which he saw in a U.S. re-release as a boy. I had a really close personal relationship with this movie, uh, just simply because I saw it as a kid, not knowing what it was. Yeah, <laughs> and I mean, and it was not 1955. I'm not that old, but it was it was it was on a re-release double bill with some of the movie, and, and it was showing at my little suburban theater, and and uh, of course I was hypnotized by it. And uh, and the in the imagery of the kids on the boat going into the cave and all that stuff, I it burned in my memory for decades, and I never knew what it was. I could never nail it down. Um, I could never find it. You know, I uh, belatedly understood that it was available in some kind of uh, public domain uh, VHS and and all that. But I but before the Criterion edition, or before they sent me the stuff to to look at for the Criterion edition, I hadn't seen the film since I've been I had been I think seven years old. Huh. And I, it was it was, and of course I never saw it in the original cut. Um, the version I saw was all mangled and dubbed and you know whatever else but it was but it was you know and it's 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 a very simple movie it's not as stylistically like fantastic as as the other films um but but i was you know but it has a kind of a kind of an innocent boy scout spirit to it that's kind of beautiful and um and i was you know boy it was a time trip for me that's for sure yeah, <laughs> yeah. there's a nice quote from your essay which is on the criterion site um, mm. that seemed to kind of sum up, uh, I thought very nicely, the, the feel of these films. And you say that he belonged to a group of directors who thought of their movies less as stories than as objects, as handicrafts, as looking-glass manifestations of the bygone interior worlds of nursery fiction, Victorian illustration, puppet theater, snow globes, dollhouses, and other forms of child's play. And, of course, what that immediately conjured up for me was Fanny and Alexander, which is kind of about Ingmar Bergman playing with all those things in kind of the same time period. Well, I don't know. In, ter in terms of the whole child play thing, it's something that I've thought has been kind of an overlooked aspect of, of um, movie making in general. Um, and, and, it, and it's funny, it's occurred to me in, in various instances that, that are very, very different from um, this, the type of filmmaking we're talking about, the, the Terry Gilliams and the, and the puppet masters of the world, you know. Um, but instead, like people like Godard, 
and you know who who seem to make movies seem to be like they're they're like kids playing at making a movie you know or playing at at you know, having a pretend play instead of actually doing something serious um and and that kind of spirit kind of animates a lot of different movies or you know very often non-professional non-mainstream movies um that i've always been kind of entranced by and the more I, the more i you know think about it and the more i like it the more i end up seeing it you know especially in independent films um very often genre films um you know what zeman does though of course is much more elaborate uh because the level of craft which is on you know in his movies is is almost unparalleled i mean in terms of one guy almost one guy doing it almost all by himself in a communist country uh you know um you know he didn't have the resources of disney or anything and yet he's he's manufacturing uh, you know, very fast moving you know passages of cinema that you you can't even account for the amount of imagery that that you're seeing you know you can't you, it, it just goes by too fast and there's too rich and there's too many layers to it um but it's all it also seemed to kind of coalesce around the idea of like this is actually we're actually playing you know we're actually having a a game of pretend you know and um so anyway and I, and you know obviously I kind of find that entrancing in a way that that I guess most people don't think about movies that way you know most people think they want to be able to believe the movie 100% while they're in it they want to be able to escape into it they don't want to have to you know yeah, I don't know, make make that toggle toward um, a kid's point of view. You know, and then and most people like to just walk away and forget about it. You know what I'm talking about? Not, not only just different uh, a different mode of filmmaking or thinking about filmmaking, but also a different mode of film watching. Well, I think, you know, I've, I saw that in, in some of the reviews for, like, Wes Anderson films, that there are people mm-hmm. who are perturbed that will suddenly go to what's kind of like almost a dollhouse set of the hotel in Buda, the hotel Budapest or or you know suddenly go to animated figures in a in a chase getaway uh in the same film right and to me it was one of those things when I watched the the first of the Zeman films I watched uh Invention for Destruction it's like oh that's where that comes from you know, in so right, many, in right. so many people, not only in Anderson, but you know Terry Gilliam, Tim Burton, you know Yellow Submarine mm-hmm. was a film that it felt like to me that it's just like we're just gonna we're gonna look at a different thing here, made a different way, and it's all part of the same thing. Yeah, no, I know, and it doesn't have to be, I don't know, you know, convincing. You know, I mean, what is what is you know? It's again, it's like I'm a, I'm kind of a child of the. Of you know you could say the child of the Enlightenment, but a child of like the New Wave era, you know, um, and and it's like the awareness of what movies are in terms of the plasticness of it, and and the awareness of the artificiality of it is kind of integral to almost any movie, as far as I'm concerned, you know, um, and it's it's modernism. It's really nothing nothing strange. Although of course Zayman is deliberately trying to make things retro, you know, and by I think by almost maybe accidentally becoming, you know, kind of using a modernist trope in terms of like introducing an element of irony into his imagery that he might not have actually intended. You know, he might have meant to, as he has said in interviews, is just say like, I just want to entrance children. I just want to give them that experience. But 
children in the 60s and beyond would, I'm sure they were entranced, but they were also entranced by much more realistic kind of movies full of more more sophisticated special effects. Uh, He was doing something that would have entranced a Victorian child. Right. Um, and so it's, so there's a retro kind of like duality to it. There's a kind of an irony built into it um, that I, I love it. It makes these things kind of profound and beautiful in a way that they wouldn't have been otherwise. Um, you know, whether it was his intention or not is irrelevant, you know. Yeah, and that's another thing that I think was, I just felt instantly I saw, oh, that's where that came from, is his use of Victorian graphics, you know, including... Uh, he's he's telling a Jules Verne story, and he's partly using the original illustrations from the story as well as amplifying them with, you know, inventions of his own. But uh, oh yeah, this idea of you know this kind of steel engravings was so present in nineteen sixties and into the seventies graphics. Everything mm-hmm. from you know album covers. I think you know what is it, the Procol Harum a salty dog that has you know yeah. a Victorian uh, <laughs> tobacco illustration on the cover and things like that. Um, it's true. And in my hometown, you know, there was a there was a restaurant called Doctor Redbird's Medicinal Inn, and it took off from that graphic style. And oh, it just wow. it just was everywhere. It was one of the things you did. It was, you know, as, as Terry Gilliam mm-hmm. found, it was an inexpensive way to have something that had a certain style to it. You know, you just took it was mm-hmm. essentially clip art that you could then play with. Yeah, well, it's also it also has the 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 extra added, added benefit of just like like all found footage filmmakers, uh, and like people like. Uh, you know Joseph Cornell and 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 Craig Baldwin people like that. It's like you take a a what used to be a piece of old mainstream culture and you repurpose it. You know and and you re, you turn into something subversive. You know which is what the whole thing. I, as far as I could track, because of course I love the style, and um, you know and so I've I've done you know I tried to like trace it back. Uh, as far as it can go, and it seems to have the use of it this way. It seems to have been it's Max Ernst that did the first. Yeah, uh, he made a, a series of books that 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 had, and you can find them, you know, online. You can Google them, and they're they're just beautiful. I mean, these 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 you know collage engraving collages that he made. He never made a film, unfortunately. Uh, that was Larry Jordan did that in the in starting in the in the late fifties. So it like passed from Max Ernst to Larry Jordan, and then there was a comic artist named Norman Rubington, um, who did a whole bunch of things for a bunch of underground comics, and eventually had a series in the first issues of Heavy Metal uh, in the seventies. Uh, and he would do the same thing, you know. But by that by that point in the seventies, it was as you say, it was kind of everywhere. Um, but I think it started with Ernst. Yeah, I mean I, Ernst, and then maybe I don't know Larry Jordan and Zeman kind of started around the same time, uh, late 50s, early 60s, um, in terms of using that imagery and kind of, you know, using old stuff like that to to just, and using and repurposing it and kind of cutting things together to make absurd images and stuff. He, um, so I'm not sure who was the chicken and the egg there. But, right. Well, let's, you know. um, let's back up and, and talk about... Hmm. Uh, Simmons' career a little bit. He floated around Europe. He was in France for a while uh, working in advertising and then got stuck back in his home country of, the, of Czechoslovakia as the war came. And so tell me how he got, how he became a filmmaker at that point. 
you know, I think, I mean, literally, I think he just started with, with advertisements that were shown in, in movie houses for, like, products. Um, and he would use little bits of animation here and there. And, you know, back then, there weren't many, for starting a starting filmmaker in the post-war era, um, or even during the war, in a communist country, there were, there were only so many utilitarian options, you know, open uh, uh, for a filmmaker. So he kind of did whatever he could do to, you know, and did various modes until he started making his own films. And the first short that he's credited for is 1945, so the war is not quite over yet. Um, and it's a, a Christmas dream which he was kind of shepherded through by his, uh, the woman who ran the animation studio that he worked for, Hermione Terlova. And that was like an international hit. Um, it played at film festivals, it won awards. It, I forget exactly what, uh, I, I thought it won some kind of like an Oscar or something, you know, um, or maybe it was a Cannes Film Festival. Um, but it was, yeah, that was kind of a hit. And you can find it on YouTube too, and it's beautiful. Uh, it's kind of simple. It's a children's film, really, but it's it's really kind of amazingly done for 1945. Uh, so there was a, there was definitely that obsession with him right off the bat. Of it was like a grown man who was interested in nothing so much as kind of just creating creating you know the movie dreams for children that that nobody else was going to make. Uh, nobody else was stepping up and doing this kind of thing, and so it was like that was like his mission in life. And then, yeah, then it was just a matter of of kind of working the system in a, a communist-run country, which had its pluses and benefits. Obviously, a lot of restrictions, but at the same time, a lot of funding, especially for animation, in a in a country that was considered puppetry, a massive legacy going back centuries. Um, and so, yeah, so he negotiated that, and eventually, you know got to make films that, that uh, generated more from his personal personal passions than from just assignments. Yeah, and you say that he he doesn't really give any sign of being particularly political or, you know, there aren't allegories easily found in those films for the political yeah. situation or anything like that. No. I mean, you could, you, as, I, as I say in the essay, you could, you could look back and say this, this obsession with the 19th century could be seen as a, you know, a, kind of a mild kind of subversive um, instinct, you know, toward um, the, uh, the, the top-down, you know, oppression that he had under communist culture. But, but generally, though, it's, it just seemed that he was just literally just like he wanted to go back in time. And that was all there was to it. Yeah. You know, and, that's, and, that's, and the films didn't obey any rules. They had, you know, he picked the, more, the larkiest stories and subjects he could find, and uh, and just literally made them like no one else on earth was making movies like this. Made them as if they were nineteenth uh, century engraved, illustrated children's books come to life. It seems I don't know. It seems today it might seem like a I don't know like a, like a sensible or even predictable style choice um, for you know for from today's perspective. You look back and say, oh yeah, if you want to make kids' films. But back then, it was it was kind of a radical thing, and no one had thought to ever make a movie like that before. Yeah. Well, and then the big hit, um, what he made is Invention for Destruction, which is based on a, a Jules Verne novel called Flying the Flag, and is is similar to Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea in that uh, there's sort of a Captain Nemo like figure who's waging war on the world. Um, 
And that was picked up by Joseph E. Levine, who would later make things like The Graduate and at the moment was getting filthy rich on Hercules movies with Steve Reeve. And looking, right. at, I guess, for other things in Europe that, uh, you know, could be shown in the U.S. And, and make money. So, which is interesting. It's kind of a golden age for that kind of uh, European filmmaking that, that it could attract someone who would put it in U.S. theaters, which is much rarer now. And I suppose the, right. the, you know, the most successful example of that, of course, is the Spaghetti Westerns with, with Clint Eastwood. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and Chinese movies and Japanese samurai films and all kinds of things i was in fact it's funny i was looking at i have a reference book that 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 among other things lists like um the amount of foreign films released in this country i I forget how it's worded but there was a time from the late 50s into the 60s for at least seven or eight years might have been longer than that when the number of films released in the united states more foreign films were released here than than domestic films and, and, you know, because, you know, the studios were slowing down, they were pouring more money into bigger projects, kind of like they are now in their own way. And, um, and, and to fill, and there were so many theaters and to fill the, the gaps, all these little distributors were buying up all this, you know, world product, um, and, and probably usually crudely dubbing them and jamming them into theaters all over the place. Um, so yeah, I think it's definitely, definitely a product of that. I mean, this is where we get the cliches coming out. I mean, I, you know, I grew up, after the sixties, but you know, the cliches of like this, the Swedish sex movie (laughs) and, you know, and, uh, you know, the, the Chinese sword fighting movie and, uh, you know, even Godzilla movies and all kinds of different things. There was the Soviet films that would come over all the time, usually sci-fi or, or, or fantasy. Um, you know, and they were, yeah, they were shown in American theaters all the time, mostly dubbed. It's not as if, you know, Americans were so much more subtitle friendly back then. Yeah. Um, yeah, not really a not really a curatorial impulse to presenting these things. It's yeah, no, no, it, it, and and very often they were edited and and maimed and redubbed and you know, and uh, and it's funny, you know, in the age of home video, in the last thirty odd years, archives and 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 distributors have been kind of unraveling the mess yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that those distributors made by uh, you know trying to find the original versions and and the not so original you know. And the uh, and very often putting both, you know, on their uh, various video releases. Right. You know. Yeah. So on this uh, Criterion set, uh, which is called uh, the Three Fantastic Journeys by Carl Simon, uh we get the the American version of Invention for Destruction, the Fabulous World of Jules Verne, which has Hugh Downs introducing it for no very clear reason. <laughs> um, it's basically I, honest, I did not. I did not watch that version. Yeah. (laughs) Well, what I think it is, is just Cinerama had sort of trained everybody to the idea that you needed, you know, that you were classier if you had a presenter like that, you know, a newsman basically (laughs) presenting it. And it kind of survives even to like something like um, those magnificent men in their flying machines has that kind of prologue Mm -hmm. too. Uh, And I think is another movie that clearly is sort of influenced by this this sort of whimsical take on Victorian invention. I mean, it seems a pretty straight line from Zeman to that here. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. And then the third film in the, in the set is, uh, the fabulous Baron Munchausen as it's known over here, although it's called Baron Brazil or something like that. I don't know what the difference in the name is. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, but it's a it's a version of the Munchausen film, obviously the one that most inspired Terry Gilliam when he made his more than the the German version from the forties. But uh, yeah, so I don't know. There there was kind of a Simon moment in the early sixties, I guess. Um, what do you know about that? Uh, well, you know, um, not so much that. I mean, in terms of the the film's initial release, not terribly. Uh, but the the Munchausen film, I I had seen. Um, I suppose in the eighties, you know, or maybe I saw it on TV in the seventies, because uh, that one was kind of circulating pretty, pretty, pretty frequently. It was like the imagery was, first of all, it was color, you know, so that made a difference in terms of TV, especially. Um, and as much as the plot was kind of just all over the place, at least there, were, yeah, it, you could you could definitely follow it, and it had a kind of a spree to it that was kind of fun to watch if you were a kid. So I think that that had a that had a longer life after afterwards after the initial release of it, um, you know. So, but it was, and I think that was considered. Is that is that the one that's considered like the greatest money making check film of all time? I thought it was uh, the Jules uh, Fabulous World of Jules Verne. The Jules Verne one, yeah, um, maybe it was. Yeah, just in terms of the way you know, just in terms of the money it made around the world on a, probably a series of releases and re-releases. Um, you know, they both they both made money in a way that check movies just never did anywhere else. You know, um, so I mean, check check cinema outside of the new wave is not something that many people in the world are terribly convinced. You know, um, familiar with, and that's why it's like how many years ago the the uh, the, the Czech Republic polled everybody, in their, you know, the scholars and filmmakers about the greatest Czech film ever made, and the result was. Um, Vlachel's Marketa Lazarova, which is a film at that point no one outside of Czech Republic had even heard of. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Although you know, I was thinking um, if you wanted to find a, an influence in Czechoslovakia, something like uh, Vera Kitalova's Daisies is oh yeah you know, is almost an animated live action film. I mean, it's sort of this madcap thing that that has yeah. all kinds of different tones and visual tricks in it. Uh, yeah, that's a very modern movie, though. You know, it doesn't have a, a kind of a retro True. feel to it at all. But it does have. It does feel like. I mean, it does treat its its heroine. You know, the two characters as almost like puppets. Yeah. You know, throughout, <laughs> but I think that's also kind of part of of the Czech tradition of of puppetry, which is. You know, a lot of European countries have that tradition going back, but none so as intense as you know Bohemia, Czech Republic, right. uh, and Slovakia, which goes back forever. Um, and it's something that they're, you know, it's, you know, and then you get John Spunkmeyer and people like that, where it's like an absolute kind of like, it's hard to characterize it. Uh, you know, I don't know if America has anything like that, you know, cultural legacies that go back hundreds of years um, that, that define the country, you know. Um, and so I think that's, I think that's, I think that's what uh, Chitlova was kind of hitting on in Daisies and, and, and Fruit of Paradise, the movie she made after that. Um, I'm trying to think of other Czech movies too, but the, that doesn't that doesn't crop up so often in the new wave films. Most are pretty serious. I mean, no no one's looking at closely mm. watched trains going, "Wow, this is just like the fabulous world of Jules Verne." Right? Yeah, no, no, <laughs> not the, yeah, it's not the new wave movies at all. Um, yeah. But the new wave was a, was a blip, though, you know, and it it lasted didn't last a long time. Um, you know, the the tanks rolled in uh, eventually and, and put a squash to that. So. So yeah, I mean, in terms of the and then you know Czech film going into the eighties and nineties, 
you know, name name one memorable title that was that the world saw. You know, um, so it, it's kind of it's kind of hard it's kind of hard pressed to 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 point to other influences at least uh, at least there. I mean, it's much more in terms of the way these films went around the world. Much more obviously to see them you know play out in, in the work of somebody like Terry Gilliam, which who absolutely has been right up front about saying, yeah, I stole. <laughs> I stole everything from Karen's, Carol Zaman. Yeah. You know. um, yeah. So, yeah, there's an interesting thing that, uh, you know, talking about how apolitical Zaman was, uh, he moved his studio from Prague to a smaller town around the time of the the Soviet invasion, pretty much just to say, I don't want to have anything to do with this. I'm out of here. Yeah. Pretty much, yeah, and then he just stopped making these bigger budgeted movies, and and his the last few films were just tabletop animation things, um, you know, made on a small scale. Um, that he, you know, yeah, he was just, he really was. I mean, I don't know if he was apolitical so much as he just he did, did not want to. He didn't want to mix. It seems like anyway, it didn't. He didn't want to mix his mission. You know his obsessive, his obsession. You know, uh, didn't want to mix it with the 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 garbage of reality. You know that was <laughs> that was happening around him, which you know must have must have drove him crazy. You know, um, so you know, and you could you could I don't know, probably point over the ages of like especially writers who have done similar things of like well you know the government and the society around me is going to crap, and so I'm just going to hole up and and do what I want to do, and you know. And try to resist any kind of you know interference from the outside world. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's what he what he's going. He's you know he's not certainly a a filmmaker that 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 you know you know we don't know a lot about him you know and and there was not a lot of um, you know interviews and stuff. And when he did when he did talk in interviews, he talked about the you know the techniques of what he was doing or how much he loved these old books and you know things like that. He was never. Uh, he wasn't much of a theorist, or certainly uh, somebody who was talking about the uh, the current of everyday politics. Yeah, no. Well, as you said at the beginning, he was he was a craftsman and probably happiest mm-hmm. at his table, making things move one frame at a time, or figuring out some ingenious way to combine models and real people and things like that. Right, and that's you know, and that's something too. It's like I don't know about I don't know about you, but. I'm, you know, the older I get, the less I get, not the less, but the the more I get interested in craft for its own sake, um, because so much of modernism over the last, you know, 80, 90 years has been essentially the negation of craft in a lot of ways uh, in favor of, you know, uh, very often abstraction and, and, you know, kind of other, other kind of other approaches that don't really place craft at a, at a high regard. Um, but I got to admit, I, I grew up reading science fiction novels and, <laughs> you know, and, and comic books and, and being really, really interested in how this stuff was done uh, visually, you know. And um, I don't know. Yeah, and the level of craft in these movies is dizzying. So, you know, that, that alone is like, I, I mean, I don't even know you need to theorize too much or if, even if you need to really love this style quite so much as just a look at what he did and I dare you to try to figure it out.
Thanks to my guests, Brett Wood and Michael Atkinson. Music is by Kevin McLeod. Be sure to subscribe at the podcast app of your choice and help us out by leaving a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts. We'll be back in a few weeks with another episode. Thanks. It's delicious, and I love it.